You are listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020 in the midst of the global pandemic at the age of only 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was my positive mindset or maybe something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity, but who have come back stronger. Today, I'm welcoming JJ Chalmers to the podcast. JJ is a television presenter, Invictus Games medalist and former Royal Marine. In 2011, JJ suffered serious, life-changing injuries whilst on duty in Afghanistan. Despite the challenges he endures on a daily basis, he has defied the odds and is now a successful broadcaster, having presented on the Paralympic Games, the Olympic Games and even the coronation of King Charles III. You may also remember him from Strictly Come Dancing, where he unbelievably reached the quarterfinals. JJ, we're not here to discuss your dancing today. <laughs> um, I have been driving your agent mad to try and get you on the show for a while. So firstly, please do apologise to her for me. Not a problem, not a problem. You have got quite the story and I wanted to start at the beginning and ask you about your career in the Royal Marines and how old you were when you joined and what made you want to be a Royal Marine? Um, I joined when I was 17. I mean, I was young enough that my mum had to sign a piece of paper to say that I could do it which was uh, a long time ago now, like it's half a lifetime ago, because uh, I actually became a commando at the age of 18, so I did my commando course at 18, and uh, I'm 36 now, so it's it's half a lifetime ago. Um, wow. So what made me want to do it? Well, really, I, a, a couple of different things. I mean, first of all, you know, speaking of my parents, I was born in a house where service was a part of what we did. If you are part of society, you um you take something out you put something back in and that service can look like lots of different things my brother's a teacher my sister's a nurse my dad's a minister my mum worked with him in the church for years so community and, and sort of society and being part of um you know being part of the solution and not just the problem was kind of what i was about um but you can do that in different ways as i said and for me i identified becoming a royal marine as a way that i could serve but i could equally sort of get something out of it I suppose but not just that it kind of aligned with my values and it aligned with who I was as a person and so I suppose the bit I was getting out of it the most was that it was a big challenge that I quite frankly didn't think I was capable of doing like on the surface but there was a little part of me sort of deep down that thought maybe you could pull this thing off and so I kind of, for the very first time in my life, backed that little voice rather than all the other voices that you've kind of got in your head. Um, and yeah, I, I just relentlessly pursued becoming a commando. And yeah, as I said, spoiler earlier, I managed to pull it off by the age of 18. So, I mean, I don't know a lot about the Marines. All I know is from watching SAS Who Dares wins. <laughs> yeah. um, are the Marines actually the fittest and strongest of all the military or is that just... Well, of course we are. Um, yeah, well, I mean, so Royal Marine training, for example, is the sort of the hardest and longest um, military training that you can do um, from civilian street. And so what I mean by that is, you know, from the point that you join to if you go through regular training 32 weeks later, being able to go to somewhere like Afghanistan, 
that's 32 weeks and your training is complete. Now, for example, talking about SS, who dares wins, obviously you've got guys who were Royal Marines who then went on to join the Special Forces, the SBS, SAS. And whilst that may be a step up, you can't just join that from Civvy Street. You have to be in the military first to then be able to do the Special Forces. So the Royal Marines is this sort of actually to be able to turn up at the age of 17, having never been in the military before, to being an elite commando, sort of flash to bang in, in what is the longest service, the longest training uh, in, in the world, but equally sort of the, the straightest line, as it were. Mm. And on researching for today, I actually came across one of the marine values of cheerfulness in the face of adversity. And I wanted to ask you about that because I find the choice of word cheerfulness really interesting. Yeah, cheerfulness. Is, I've never really thought about cheerfulness as in a, a choice of words because it is a, it's a cheeky little one, isn't it? Mm. Um, but it is the absolute cornerstone of our sort of value system. Uh, in many ways, it sort of trumps all the other ones of, you know, uh, determination and courage and all those things because, I mean, it underpins all of them. And it is about finding that little silver lining in moments, really. And, and listen, some of it is when you are cold, wet and miserable like you are in training and life just couldn't seem to get any worse. You can't actually help sort of look across the harbour area, you know, out in the forest somewhere and one of your mates who's having just as miserable a time as you and actually that just makes you smile and then you both start chuckling to yourself. But equally, I had moments like that in Afghanistan where, you know, we had a really close shave um, and, you know, we were all pretty amazed to be alive uh, and you can't help but sort of look at each other and basically, yeah, you, you kind of follow up with, with laughter. So it's those moments of extreme. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't take our job seriously, far from it, but we're able to find uh, levity and, and these little moments of, of cheerfulness in these, you know, sometimes absolutely horrid situations. Yeah, I really like it because it takes me back to one of my favourite quotes by Viktor Frankl when he writes about his time in the concentration camps. And he says that humour was another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. And I do, I think, you know, humour and cheerfulness is so important and something that gets really overlooked by a lot of kind of just, you know, normal people. Um, and it has come up on this podcast a lot of times. People have said, nice. you know, I just wish I could laugh, like, you know, laughter, the importance of laughter and cheerfulness. So I was really pleased to well, see I, that as well. I'm sure as well, as if, you, if you sort of looked into it scientifically, there's probably, you know, is an endorphin release. There is that sort of actually what's going on in you physically. Um, that there probably will be a sort of reversal of, of, of genuine, not just your attitude, but actually what your body's response to a situation. And so, yeah, I think if you really pl plucked into it, you would find that. But equally, just being able to find a smile when it just doesn't seem like that that's possible. Uh, is that it, it's that thing which just makes us human and ultimately you know uh, uh, you know as a sort of high performance individual i think it's that thing which can take you a little bit further than you think you're capable of yeah and we're going to come back to that and why i imagine that was quite important for you after your injury um but let's kind of just set the scene so 2011 it's your first tour to afghanistan you're only 23 so you're still pretty young I think. And I heard you say on another podcast that before you travel out to Afghanistan, you're warned that one in eight of you will die or get seriously injured. And that's pretty, I think that sounds like pretty high odds. So traveling out there, were you scared? How, like, how did you feel about going out on tour? Yeah. I, do you know, it was my, my mate, Ed Byrne, um, the, the Irish comedian. He once pointed out to me that Russian roulette is one in six. And, 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 and until I sort of put it in that scale, I was like, oh, 
Because actually, yeah, we just thought it was a 7 and 8 chance would be all right. And it wasn't just that we were told that it was 1 and 8. It was that we were living it in the sort of weeks and months and years leading up to this. Because if you weren't in Afghanistan, you were basically preparing, but there was somebody else you knew that was in Afghanistan. And that's just the nature of the military at that time, particularly the Royal Marines. So, like, you just need to look at what your mates were, like, how many of them were coming back um, in one piece or weren't coming back, you know, at, at, at all. And you were able to see that statistic for itself. Um, but equally, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a part of you that's, that is scared. Like, I remember the first time I went out on a patrol, um, just sort of being, like, hyper aware of everything that was going on around me um, to just, you know, you just think... If there's a crack in the ground, there must be a bomb there. Um, but time over time, you start to be able to read the environmentals, basically read the, the environment a lot better than than when you first arrived there. And yeah, at no point do you stop being scared because that idea of not being afraid of something means that you've got sort of nothing to nothing to lose. And, and that certainly wasn't the situation. Now, I, I didn't have, for example, I didn't have dependents. So I, I kind of, in you know, some ways I valued my life at being less important and, and worth less than, say, some of the guys that had, you know, a wife and that had that had kids. You know, I could look across the table at those guys or, you know, on patrol and be like, well, if anyone's coming back alive, I've got to make sure it's him. So you could, you could, you could read the situation like that. But in reality, there's a part of you that is afraid, but that's the whole point. That's what courage is. It's, it, it's knowing what the danger is and going anyway. Um, because you understand the bigger picture, you understand what you're trying to achieve, what the mission is, and you are you will accept a level of, of threat and risk, not just because uh, it's the right thing to do, but also because it's the smart thing to do. It's that sort of, if you push the envelope, say, for example, if we would go out and we would put ourselves in harm's way, what that did was push the enemy back, so that that meant that actually the next day we'd have a little bit less work to do. And actually the population around us, for example, in Afghanistan, would be a little bit safer. And if they were a bit safer, then they would be far more on our side, willing to help us. Um, and so the, the more you took those risks and the harder you pushed, actually the easier you were making your life further down the line. Mm, so interesting. So you, you, you were scared, but you were using that fear to your advantage. Are you happy to tell us what actually happened on that day where you got injured? Absolutely, yeah. So it was the 27th of May, as you say, 2011. Um, I, we were on this massive sort of an operation that was, I, I don't know how many thousand people ultimately sort of involved in it across Helmand province in the south of Afghanistan. Uh, but we were sort of right at the tip of the spear. Um, and we'd pushed into an area that was extremely dangerous. It had never really seen any sort of security forces whether they be afghan or international so i hadn't seen americans or british or anyone but ultimately was being controlled by the taliban so these are the areas we would need to move into to sort of you know claw back from them so that we could provide that level of sort of security that i was talking about wanting to provide for people that lived in this area and so when you move into one of these like hornet's nests basically you stir up all the sort of danger in an area and that was that was actually what our job was we were there to in some ways cause a distraction so that people would come and fight us and while they were doing that you know other units would be able to do big picture stuff anyway it meant that i was in a pretty bad neighborhood and we had identified what we believed was the bomb making factory for that area and so whilst you know we would get into sort of firefights on a daily basis and whatnot when we were there the big threat was these improvised explosive devices these roadside bombs that they sometimes get called in the press 
Um, and if you can figure out where these things are being made and you can try and arrest the person making them and shut down that sort of facility, you actually stand some sort of chance of achieving something. If you're just trying to you know, find them in the ground uh, and walk around them or defuse them or whatever it might be, you're, you're, you're playing a losing battle or at least you're taking so much risk that one of these things is going to get you. Yeah, it's just getting to the root of it, I suppose, isn't it? And eliminating Absolutely. the root of the problem. Absolutely. And so we were tasked with, you know, going into this high value target, this area. Uh, and obviously, you know, with it being the, a bomb making factory, uh, the enemy, one, wanted to keep it safe, you know, keep it to themselves. So they, they w were defending it. But two, knew that, yeah, we might come looking for it. And so they, they had essentially booby trapped it with I improvised explosive devices. Uh, and unfortunately, one was triggered while we were searching the compound. And it, 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 you know, this huge device went off. And whilst I was not standing right on top of it, I was standing talking to a guy who was. And so all of the debris, all of the, because they're buried in the ground in this really hard baked, you know, Afghan soil that's, you know, because it was the height of summer, it just starts throwing huge chunks of ground, the sort of size of house bricks around um, at hundreds of miles an hour. And it just bludgeoned me basically from, from, not quite head to toe, from my head down to my knees, uh, pretty much to saying some some bit of damage. What do you remember from the actual moment? That actual moment. How is your memory? Um, so of the so of the whole day, um, because I took a knock to the head, I've got little like fragmented pictures that you can put together and kind of understand where I was and what I was doing. But of the actual moment itself, I just remember the fragment, which is talking to my friend to then lying on my back with my ears ringing and the dust settling around me and just being in a huge amount of pain and so that that that's literally within like a, the first couple of seconds uh, and then that's sort of followed up by trying to figure out why i was in this pain what could possibly have happened and then yeah pretty quickly then suddenly realizing holy crap like i am i am the one in eight it's this this has actually happened to me and 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 you know your life is somewhat sort of flashing before your eyes in a way i'm not saying in terms of sort of you know seeing seeing my childhood or anything but it is more that sort of like holy crap if we don't get charge of this situation it ends right now um and so that's that's all happens within the space of about i don't know a millisecond if not you know a second at the most it's, it's pretty wild how much information you sort of process so quickly so did you know were you aware of the severity very early on? I knew from the level of pain that I was in that it must be pretty bad. I knew from the fact that I could only see out of one eye because one of my eyes had been sort of crushed that mm -hmm. like that in itself must be pretty bad. Um, I knew from uh, like my inability to use my arms, for example. You know, I went to try and give myself first aid and like one of my arms was pretty much gone uh, and the other one I could see that all of my fingers had come off my hand more or less. So like mm. that in itself was, you know, bad. Uh, I could appreciate it. I probably wasn't going to work the next day. Um, <laughs> and as for my legs, they were so sore. I just didn't know if they were there or not because I was just kind of stuck on my back like a turtle because um, yeah. my kind of body armor was like, you know, holding me down, kept so heavy, that sort of thing. And so I, I wasn't able to see what was wrong with me, but I could just feel it was really bad. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you get a fairly good impression from the guys, as, even though they're sort of trying to tell you everything's all right. Like, you can tell there's panic going on. You can tell it's bad. Yeah. I find the concept of memory and traumatic incidents really intriguing 
because some people I speak to seem to forget everything and all the minutiae. And then some people get this heightened awareness of what they've been through. Um, personally, with my trauma, you know, I went through cancer and the treatment of cancer, etc. And it might be different because my trauma is maybe more dragged out. But I have loads of different memory gaps, which I'm still kind of, you know, wow. four years down the line now trying to piece it back together. Um, but I do find that that memory side of things and what you actually do and don't remember really, really interesting. And it seems like you do have quite, you've you've have remembered quite a lot of detail. Yeah, some of it I remembered fairly quickly. I was in a coma for about a week, and when I woke up, those fragments started to come back. But some of those fragments didn't come back until, you know, someone months later said something, and it kind of, you know, a little chunk of memory came back. I remember, I remember a point in my recovery, like losing sleep at night, trying to remember it, like really trying to, like as if it would help to be able to go, like, can you figure this one out? And then I remember talking to uh, the doctor that was looking after me because I had a mild traumatic brain injury. So she was looking after me. And she explained basically what the body's response was as to why I wasn't remembering. And basically, when you when you take a hit to the head, your body goes into this defense. Your brain goes into this defensive mode where it you know it just pumps chemicals out in order to try and you know self preserve itself. And with that, your short-term memories, which is the memories of the day, are somewhat lost because they mm -hmm. haven't had time to become, you know, go to your long-term memory. Um, and so it's, I always liken it to if you're working on your computer and it crashes and you, you were writing a Word document and it says, do you want to try and, you know, save, you know, do you want to try and, what is it, like, I can't remember the word for it now. Do you want to try and retrieve the yes. file? And actually it brings some of it back, but not all of it back. That's what it was. It, it managed to just cling on to enough pieces of it, but the other parts are genuinely gone and probably gone forever because they were never saved at, at, at that stage. Maybe that's a self-preservation thing as well because, you know, your brain doesn't want to remember some of those things. You're probably right because, you know, the, the irony of, of, of the situation is that for those who were there and helped clean up this situation, and you've got to bear in mind that essentially about half of us had been killed or injured and half of the guys left were dealing with all of that. You know, I have friends that, that go to bed at night and that's that's all they dream. You know, they would love nothing more than to never see that memory again, whereas mm -hmm. I would love to see it one more time complete. And so it, there, there's a real cruel irony in actually my brain is essentially functioning the way it should. Um, and, yeah. and sadly for them, you know, they've had this, not just a, it's, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is not just a sort of mental health condition, it's a memory condition. And actually their brain was essentially rewired in an instant and it doesn't work the way that, you know, it, it should or conventionally would. Mm. Would you really like to see it if you had the chance? Well, I mean, you would have to, if somebody offered you that, you would have to think about it. You know, what are the repercussions of knowing for sure? and having to live with those memories. I, I think I would. There would be a sense of closure, of understanding of some of the um, the unknown elements of it and that sort of... And it's not even... It's You know, as I say, enough time has passed now where I, I don't struggle to fall asleep at night sort of wondering, shoulda, woulda, coulda, what could we have changed? The fact of the matter is I know fine well nothing could have changed in that day. But there is a part of me that has this fascination with understanding how it played out and just, you know, why I look the way I am or why somebody else isn't here and I am, all of those parts of it. But actually, most of that boils down to dumb luck and nothing else. <laughs> so did you go through a period of asking, why me? Uh, not necessarily why me. Um, 
I mean, I kind of understood enough about what we were doing that day and where I was standing and all those sorts of bits and pieces as to, like, enough to be able to figure out, oh, like, I'm alive just because I was stood in the right place. And and, and the why me's are, for example, I've probably stepped on the device before, for example, um, because we were all sort of in and around this area and and it ne- didn't necessarily someone didn't, I didn't quite stand on it in the right place or whatever it was. So there are those tiny variables where you could go what if what if why me? But in reality, the why me because I was in a war zone. Simple as that. Yeah. And one or eight people got killed or injured at the time, and I just happened to be the guy that whose number got called that day. And like you know, the, the way to the way to increase your chances of that not happening to you is to is to just not be there basically but that wasn't an option like i wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time i was exactly where i was meant to be at exactly the time that i was meant to be there and unfortunately it was just a bad day at work yeah just bad luck basically yeah Yeah. and i think sometimes we spend too much time analyzing you know why something happens and again i've done the same with you know my cancer and i've said this before on the podcast was it because i you know drank too much at university etc but essentially it took my oncologist saying to me it's just luck bad luck and genetics and we can't change that sometimes yeah and i think that helps us moving forward though when we can switch that on yeah and that that, that's a journey in itself isn't it and and that's the thing you can you can you can look back at certain things and you can go okay what can i learn from this situation and what can what habit can i change and you know in terms of afghanistan is like how do we change our tactics to to alleviate things like that now the reality is in our situations we pretty much did everything right it's just that the enemy got just a little bit more right than us and that's the whole that's the whole game basically um, they got very lucky and we got very unlucky. But equally, I got extremely lucky immediately after by surviving the thing. And then actually what came after that part is not luck. It's being surrounded by unbelievably well-trained individuals. It's having a you know, helicopter on standby. All of that stuff is process. And that is the stuff that we can learn from and we can improve. But as you say, that moment of, well, this is happening now, that, that's, that's the luck part of it. Yeah. So what were your actual injuries? So, um, as they said to my family at the time, let's start at the bottom and work our way up. So, from my knees up to my sort of waist was just, my legs are just sort of full of holes. Um, it, to the day, now it looks like a kid got a crayon and kind of scribbled all over it in terms of scars. So, we're just hundreds of holes in my legs full of the frag that came off of this device. And that is all dirty. And so, that is also full of infection. Um, and then my arms, my right elbow had pretty much just been bludgeoned, disintegrated, all of the bones broken, all of the nerves damaged, um, the muscles, the tendons just torn to pieces. Um, and that nerve damage spreads all the way down into my hand. And so my right hand, for example, you know, it, it, it I have basically no muscle function in it whatsoever. Uh, my left hand, I had lost my pinky and ring finger. Uh, and then my other two sort of well, my other two fingers had essentially come off and I had to get put back on. And then again, nerve damage, muscle damage, soft tissue damage, that basically means that those three fingers that are remaining don't function anywhere near the way they should. Uh, my face had been crushed, my neck had been broken, my eardrum was burst, um, and just yeah, I was just a bit of a mess head yeah. to toe. But actually, like because I was wearing body armor, my internal organs were pretty much fine. Uh, and, and my sort of torso hadn't been damaged. It was really just, you know, extreme damage to my um, to my extremities. 
But except for two fingers, I'd kept everything. But none of it worked the way that it was meant to. And that's yeah. what makes this complex drama. Yeah. And am I right in saying you went to Birmingham for your rehab? Yeah. Well, so Birmingham is where you where you go to hospital. So you go to the mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth um, Hospital, which yeah. was sort of brand new when I when I woke up in it a, a week later from from the blast. So um, I train. I I'm a physiotherapist by trade, oh, wow. and I I trained there. So when I really? saw you being in Queen Elizabeth, I was like, oh, I, I I worked there back That's... in 2006. I was there. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, I know it's fantastic. it's an amazing it's an amazing place. And it's so funny. My friends kept coming in and being like, "God, this place is amazing! Look at this! It looks like something like Star Trek or something." And you're just like, "I have I've not seen anything but this bed, and I've been here for two months." Um, yeah. So yeah, I was there for nine weeks, and then you go to your rehab is done in a place called Headley Court, which yeah. is down in Surrey, and that's the sort of in-house, um, like just just where you get your physio, uh, your occupational therapy, your exercise rehab instructors are there, all that sort of stuff. Is you've got a new body, that's where they teach you how to use it. Uh, yeah. And that's sort of how the system worked all them years ago, back in 2011. <laughs> exactly. And how much of the challenge throughout your rehab do you think was emotional as well as physical? And the reason why I ask that is because, as well, again, as a physio, I'm well aware in that scenario how powerful one's mindset and one's mental state can be in your recovery. So how did you find that element? Yeah, it was absolutely massive. Um, and I did and didn't realise it at the time. Um, the reason I sort of um, the, the reason I, I knew it was is because I've known since I was 17 years old and joined the Marines that any physical challenge is pretty much a mental challenge, more so, and and it's all about you know those voices that I was talking about at the very beginning of this, you know, making sure that the right ones win that conversation and then you act upon it accordingly and you do whatever is required in that moment, whether it's to try and pass a test in Royal Marines training, you know survive the day in Afghanistan or get fitter and get back to life in rehab um, but because I was quite well versed in that when it came to my recovery of course I was you know this was like odds I'd never faced before and this was challenging me mentally harder than ever had I understood what was kind of going on and so um, as I say with hindsight I can now see just how much I was doing it but actually it didn't take um, it, uh, it, it's second, it was second nature to me at that time to sort of look at this challenge and be like, all right, how do you find that cheerfulness in the face of adversity? That, that wasn't something I was learning for the first time. I was le- having to apply it to, to a level which I perhaps hadn't in the past, but I could understand that this was a, a mental challenge. And so now in hindsight, I can look back and go, wow, that was enormous just how mentally challenging all of that was. But at the time, it was so normal because... One, pretty much everyone everyone around you is doing the same thing. Like, I'm surrounded by guys who, some I'd been in Afghanistan with that day. Um, some I'd, you know, I, I had, were maybe years ahead of me in recovery, but I, I knew them and I could see what they were living through or had lived through. So in our world, facing this level of trauma and adversity was just a normal thing. And so it's not until all these years later that I can look back at it and go, wow, that, like, that is not normal and it's not what most people... Um, sort of ever endure in their life or ever experience um, now of course everybody experiences hardships of, of varying degrees of course they do um, but that's what I'm saying is that my hardship was probably more than most um, face but equally my ability to deal with it was probably more than most are prepared for so it, it just kind of 
it, it, it was a continuation of what I was doing before, just in, a, yeah. in another extreme setting. But not every injured Marine or injured military person will have that positive mindset and that positive mental attitude. So do you think there was something ingrained in you from your upbringing, from your childhood or something pre-Marines that gave you that kind of innate resilience? Well, what I'd say is that m more often than not, people that go through what I did within the military setting do actually come out of it. Um, you know, and you can even look at the statistics, that is the case. And one of the reasons for that is, is because, yeah, I was basically trained and vetted even from the age of 17. You know, I, I, I people ask, you know, like we're talking about today, whether I I had, the, you know, the, the qualities that I needed to get through my recovery in me already. Well, yes, I did. I had them when I was 17 years old and decided to join the Marines. They put me in situations where I then discovered that I had it in me all along, but they, 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 harnessed it and proved it showed me how to use it and then I was able to then apply that to everything that I would do in my life there there moving forward but if I'd been an individual that at the age of 17 had gone you know the first time he'd throw, been thrown in a puddle gone right I'm out I'm not bothering with this um, because I didn't have that mindset and I'd quit well then you know 13 years later or 10 years later or whatever it was what was it six years later I should say I wouldn't have been blown up like it would never have happened um, and so, um, as I say, most of the guys that I went through rehab with were having this this very similar experience. And and it's not to say that it was easy, and it's not to say that people didn't have their absolute down days. Again, the wonderful situation that we had was that when you had those moments, you were surrounded by guys who'd put their arm around you and pull you up. And so when you were lacking that morale, somebody else would come and give you it, and you did the same in return. Um, so we were just in a very, very good setting for this sort of recovery. Yeah, and that's the importance of community as well, isn't it? In places like Headley Court, where you are all rehabbing together. And am I right in saying that you lost some of your friends in the blast as well, and some of your team died? Yeah, so um, we had two Marines and our Afghan interpreter were killed. So our troop commander, um, Ollie Augustin, uh, and probably the best Marine on the ground that day, Sam Alexander, MC, uh, were killed in the blast uh, um, immediately, and uh, whilst the lads did everything they could to try and save them, uh, unfortunately, that you know that the blast was just so significant that yeah, that they never really stood a chance, unfortunately. And that's that's the luck. That's the luck yeah. of the situation. Um, and how did that affect you? How did that affect you with your rehab moving forward? Um, so when I first woke up, it was. I mean, I didn't even know when I first woke up. You know, but, but when you are making finding out that discovery it's not like they wake you up and just go oh, by the way this is what's happened actually they kind of put it on you to ask the questions and so it wouldn't be until days after i'd i'd um i'd woken up that i was kind of lying there thinking about the situation trying to remember it um and i just remember a moment where during the blast one of my friends who had given me first aid and patched me back up said jj we've done everything i can for you right now mate but we've got to go and deal with the other casualties um, and so that, that, you know, those weeks later, I was thinking about it going, well, where are the other guys? Because there was other people hurt. Why are they not in the room with us? And although Cass, our medic, was in the bed next to me, he'd lost his leg. They didn't say, I'm going to go deal with Cass. They said the other guys. And so I was like, there's other people hurt. Like, where are they? And so that's when I asked the question. And then in return, they give me that information, which is that, you know, we'd lost three lads. Um, and so in that first moment, one of my first thoughts was, holy crap, like how how bad was this incident 
that people were killed. Like so, it made me suddenly realize just how even you know how close I'd come to death. Even more so, you know, it wasn't just oh you got hurt and and that that's the end of it. It's like this was a situation that if you'd been stood where they were stood, you wouldn't be having this conversation. I mean, it, and that's so that definitely put some some of it in perspective. And then yeah, that moment of um, when you when you're lying there in a hospital bed thinking about what your future may hold, and you're having those down days, and you're having those moments of oh, what am I going to do about this? And do I have enough strength to get through this? And you know, this is just so bloody painful. I want it to end, basically. You know, and then there were moments where you were just like, God, this is so physically sore. For example. Like, I just want this to end. Um, whether that's that they make me unconscious or, you know, something else happens, I don't care because it's so bad right now. You suddenly realise, God, I'm sure Sam and Ollie would love to be lying here in a hospital bed feeling sorry for themselves. So, actually, shut up and get on with it because that's the perspective you kind of need in that moment where you realise, yeah, actually, if there's a part of this that's not fair, it's their part. The bit that's happened to me is very fair. Like, I've, I've actually got the good deal here. So you better get on with them, um, you know, playing that winning lottery ticket you've been given. Yeah, so you had the privilege to live and that helped to drive you forward. Exactly, exactly. And still does. And, but yeah. but n- not, with, not with guilt, but rather with this motivation of um, you best take this opportunity that they didn't have and make them proud, basically. Um, yeah. not, not because they're going to tell you off when you get to the pearly gates, but rather that they'll be able to buy you a beer and say, yeah, it was a decent shift you put in, mate. Yeah. And this podcast is about post-traumatic growth, really. Um, And your transition of, you know, basically being blown up to thriving is quite remarkable. So how did you go about pursuing a career in television? Where did that come about? I mean, that is, ah, it's so, it's so silly. Um, Yeah. How did that happen? Um, so, you know, I, I went through rehab through Headley Court, as we talked about, and just went through the motions, which you all, which everybody does. And the motions at the beginning are like, can I learn to put my shoes on and like dress myself and feed myself and drive a car again, have independence? And so I kind of achieved that within, I don't know, a year or so it took to get back to that point. And then, so that'd be London 2012, actually. It's kind of when, when that, that began, began to happen. And so then I started to look at, we literally had guys competing in London 2012 and a lot of guys who were like, all right, four years now, four years later, Rio, this is happening. Now, there wasn't a part of me that was like, I want to, I want to be part of the Paralympic movement, but rather I, I knew that, that sport would be a way to uh, challenge myself further. Um, and that's what I was looking for. Like I, I had the normal and mundane sort of back, but actually my life up to that point hadn't been normal and mundane. I'd been a Royal Marine Commando and, um, you know, I prided myself on going the extra mile and doing extraordinary things and and to the point where those extraordinary things were ordinary. And so I was looking for something a bit, you know, something like that, you know, better than the just okay. And equally that sort of motivation that, that I'd got from losing the lads had, had made me think, yeah, just okay is not good enough by them either. Like, come on, let's, let's, let's set the set your your sights a little bit higher here and then basically it's, it's all it's all about timing and, and 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 luck again that the point when i was out there trying to find this physical challenge the invictus games became a thing so this is 2014 now um or the very beginning of 2014 really um and 
Prince Harry had come up with this idea, which is a sports competition for wounded, injured, and sick. So, like, the Venn diagram is me sat in the middle of it all. Um, and it would be none of us knew. We just thought it was going to be a sports day at you know an army barracks somewhere. We didn't realize the enormity of it that it was going to be, um, you know, the Olympic Park, and it would be on the TV, and there'd be a documentary made, and all of this stuff. And and ten years later, that it would still be a thing. None, none of us knew that at the time. All we knew was, great, a chance to do some sport, which is the thing I wanted. And so I just sort of focused my attention on riding a bike. So I have a recumbent tricycle. So it's um, two wheels at the, at the front, one at the back. And I just started riding my bike. And then we started to get a bit of a sense of how big this thing was going to be when basically TV cameras started turning up to our training. And we were like, oh, they're making a documentary. And oh, this is actually going to be on telly. Oh, blooming heck, this is, this is something. And so what that, what that then sort of showed me was that there was a world outside of what we of, of our existence and that existence isn't just the rehab world we were in but rather you know when you're in the military like for example you're told never talk to the media do you know so like we walk the other way as soon as somebody gets a camera out so there i was being interviewed and 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 equally it basically i was you know long story short i was in the studio being interviewed by jonathan edwards the sort of olympic legend and a fantastic TV presenter. And I looked across at the job that he was doing. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to do what you do. And and I said it to him. I said, the next time we do an interview, I want to be sat in your chair. How do we make that happen? And he was very gracious to um, help me, introduce me to a few people. Obviously, this is, you know, going out to the world, but equally is being produced by a gallery of people who had similar thoughts, you know. So there was some really influential figures within that sort of program that was being made that just took a little note of me that day um and and helped me along the way so people in front and behind camera that got me into the industry and that's really it and it's a it's a it's a toe in the door is all you need and i got that in 2015 it was to present a little segment at a thing called the national paralympic day so it was a sort of uh, one of the anniversary events of london 2012 um and so that was my little on it went out on tv but it was essentially my screen test and mm -hmm. i managed to pass that test and then it was a slightly bigger goal slightly bigger program slightly bigger thing and each each bit you just managed to sort of just get outside of your comfort zone just that little bit outside of what you think you're capable of um and you ultimately ultimately succeed and then basically the carrot just keeps dangling keeps dangling and the next thing you know pff, what is it eight years later you're presenting the olympics it's just yeah. it's just it's just a snowball that kind of just grew and grew and grew it's amazing and i read that you had an ambition to present not just the paralympics but the olympics as well and that happened didn't it in tokyo 2021 yeah so i came back from the rio paralympics in 2016 um with a, <laughs> a whole bunch of realizations one of which was that um i was i you know, I wasn't a good enough presenter to be presenting the Paralympics at that point. If I'm being completely honest, I, I was still had a lot to learn. I was still very wet behind the ears, and I just sort of scraped through that um, uh, with the, the help of my amazing, um, my amazing co-presenter Sophie Morgan, who thought and felt exactly the same as me. We were way out of our depth, um, so I knew I would need to sort of get back in the trenches and just kind of learn learn how to do my job a bit better. So I set about doing that. Uh, in various various guises, as I say, just sort of adding to that snowball, as was the analogy I did earlier. And but I knew that one, I really, really loved these big sporting events. You know, I loved the Paralympic movement, but I loved the sort of magnitude of these multi-sport events. And I just had this sense when I left Rio that you know, when you were working with the team, 
um, at Channel 4. Yes, Claire Balding had been at both, and Jonathan Edwards had been at both, I think. But actually, none of the presenters who had a disability had worked on the Olympics um, and then gone on to work in the Paralympics. And so I, I felt that these games... You know, the Rio Games were one games. Now, yes, they are organized by two different committees, the Olympic Committee and the Paralympic Committee. Yeah, they take a little gap between the, the two games to rearrange the chairs or whatever, but it's still one games. And so I set myself the target and goal of come Tokyo, of being the the, the, the presenter or whatever job they might give me, uh, that would work on both of these things, all 28 days worth of sport, you know, driving the parity between these two events. But equally, you know, I would be the first person to present the Olympics that had a disability. Like that, that, that goal was there to try and be achieved. Um, and so we had to wait a year because of the pandemic. And it was really frustrating. I think I'd got my job in 2019. I knew my oh, dream wow. was sort of coming. And I just had to wait one year and then I had to wait two years for it to happen. Um, but that, that was it. You know, day one of the Tokyo Games began. Uh, we weren't in Tokyo for the Olympics. We were back in Salford. Uh, in a big green box pretending we were there um well we were never pretending we never told the viewers we weren't there we just uh you know you know we just never said that we weren't um and so you know that began basically the craziest sort of months worth of work went to tokyo for the paralympics and worked on all 28 days of it and crap i did something like 180 hours worth of presenting or something wow. um and, you know, that that was one, a dream come true that I'd managed to achieve that. And, you know, quite a significant achievement for a presenter with a disability. But for me, it was about ensuring that I'm not the last presenter with a disability to ever do that, you know, because it's it's about driving that parity and that that um, that visibility, you know, and, and actually just having an individual with a disability who comes from a different community now, which I'm very, very proud to be part of, to have that voice in the room and to, to say that we are part of society. And that actually our voice should be heard and our, you know, our view of the world should be recognised. Yeah. And that's, I think, as well, why it's so important that, you know, you went on Strictly Come Dancing. So, again, people with disabilities can can be seen to be dancing and to do something as physical as Strictly Come Dancing and then get Absolutely. to the quarterfinals, which is, you know, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, I should do I, I wasn't even meant to do Strictly, you know, as I say, because I should have been at the, the Olympics and Paralympics at that point. And it was only because mm -hmm. of the moving of the of the pandemic that I ended up, you know, doing that series back in 2020. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's some of the sort of ridiculous arguments I see about that happen every year when they have a new contestant. And it was me and then it was Rose and then it was Ellie Simmons and, you know, mm -hmm. th th those that came before us. Like it's the same tired arguments that come out in the press or in the comments section on Twitter. And the simplest answer is it's a made up dance competition. Everybody yeah. in the world has a right to take part in it. it. Like the only requisite of it is, is that you are somewhat famous or a familiar face. So, you know, that I'd achieved that thing by being a presenter. It didn't matter whether I, what way I looked or how I worked. This isn't, you know, this isn't the, the dancing world championships. It's a made up dance competition. Yeah. there is a place for you within it because it's reflective of what society is and everybody has the right to exist within our society yeah of course i can't believe you actually get trolling for that you know it's, that's it's, it's so funny awful. yeah yeah it's um <laughs> it's such an interesting one and and it, you know going through the strictly process taught me a lot about uh the way that people with disabilities are perceived um you know 
like you know, I could bore you all day with the sort of you know the, the conundrums that it, that it, that it throws up in the world but you know one of them is just like the, the, the idea that people with a disability are viewed with sympathy rather than with empathy this is yeah. probably one of the most simplest ways I can put it um, and that equally you know a lot of the time people would rather that we were just um, still to this day would rather that we just um, you know sat to one side because it would just make their lives a lot easier uh, but that ain't happening anymore because why no. should we do that actually no. society needs to get itself in check and make it make you know realize that if you have a disability actually it's not up to us to do the adapting but rather society needs to change so that we don't have to adapt yeah exactly so like i said i'm a physio so i work with team gb now and i work with the paralympic guys yeah. and you know i lo i love the the celebrating of difference I think that is just so inspirational that every four years it's just celebrating people's differences. Um, and then what you're saying also about society coming on board with it. One of my podca podcast guests, Martine Wright, who was involved Amazing. in the 7 7 terrorist attack, yeah. she was telling the story how, so she lost both her legs. And she was telling the story of, um, I think it was when she was in hospital, there was a pedal bin. So in a I, I, I amputee know the story, ward, so I know Martine, yeah, and I've been told this story. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I I was like, yeah. that's unbelievable in an amputee it's, ward. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, and, and but it's, and nobody put that bin there because to discriminate against her so that she couldn't use the bin. It's just that people didn't think, and actually, yeah. that's a lot of the, a lot of occasions. It's just it's just purely that that that, and this happens with lots of different parts of society. I'm not saying it's just those with disability. It's just that we've probably got the longest way to come in many respects. It's just that often people don't know to think in that manner and that is about um us with the disability you know educating the world of course but equally just everybody being taught in a different way and the, you know like i do a lot of work with sort of design and technology over the years and and it is about how do we design the world better not just physically but in you know metaphorically speaking how do we how do we make this the, the world our existence just a little bit fairer than we think about everybody else uh, and not just ourselves basically yeah, cool. So yeah, you worked on King Charles Coronation, which again, must have just been mind blowing. Um, so, you know, that was massive. What JJ is next for you? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, that, th those were big moments, you know, working on the coronation, the funeral of Her Majesty and the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, you know, all in relatively quick succession as well. Um, those were like, those were historic moments, which again, you know, you put on, you put there next to, you know, doing the Olympics and the Paralympics back to back, you know, to be able to achieve something which as a career goal is most certainly, you know, a dream, um, you know, to be, to be trusted with that level of responsibility is, you know, is enormous and to be mm -hmm. part of history in such a significant moment is really, really important. So there is a part of me for the record that if this all went away tomorrow for whatever reason, which is how telling showbiz can happen, Actually, there's a part of me that should be quite happy and just go, do you know what? That was a pretty good innings. You should take that. Um, and then, you know, I'll just go off to my garage and make benches and sell them on eBay or something. Um, so that, that there is that part. But then there's another part of me that goes, okay, well, you're only just getting started here. And, you know, I want to, I want to do this job, which I love doing, love being a broadcaster. I want to do this for the next 40, 50 years, you know? And, and, and within that, there are things that you're absolutely right. Like there are program ideas and formats or whatever it might be that I would love to I would love to sort of helm and and and, and make my own because that's the other thing that happens at this sort of part in your career I remember standing there for it was the Queen's funeral and I had a sort of minute piece to camera rant to do 
and nobody had written it for me. You know, it was me standing at Wellington Barracks giving the thoughts and reflections of what the military would be feeling that day. And no one could script that. They just said, JJ, you need to write this. And in that moment, I realized, oh, actually, they've not just hired me because I'm, you know, a reporter who can just read a script. They've hired me because it's me and I only I know in this sort of Venn diagram what it must feel like to be a, a member of the armed forces, you know, on this historic day. And so actually when I sort of delivered it in rehearsal, my piece to camera, waiting for the sort of notes back from the producers, no notes came because they were like, yeah, that's if that's what you feel, that's what you believe, then that's 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 the message that needs to be heard. And so that's when you begin to back yourself as an individual and actually harping back to, you know, not being ready for Rio is because I wasn't technically strong enough. Now I'm technically a strong enough presenter that I, yeah, I can basically be myself and I can appear as if I'm natural, even though the job we do is not natural do you know it's it's you're it's basically acting pretending that everything's all right even though there's a fire going on in your ear because you know th that's how tv programs are made someone's screaming at you some director or producer or whatever it is so anyway my point is now that i have this sort of level of skill and i have this level of confidence to be myself then i want to go out and make programs in the way that i would like to see them made and it kind of harps back to what we were saying about disability for example is actually when we when we have subject areas that I believe I have a lived experience of or a knowledge of that others wouldn't, then I want to be the voice that's there to be able to to best convey it. And again, um, I, I, I'm not trying to, for example, speak on behalf of all veterans or speak on behalf of um, the, the entire disabled community. Actually, what I'm trying to do is create enough space in our industry so that more folks like me can come through and their voices can be heard. And so I do a lot of work behind the scenes um, where, yeah, we change we the change the way we editorialize and talk about veterans or we talk about disability uh, and just generally try and champion and try and create space for more folks like me uh, to be able to have their voice heard. And so, you know, the, the way that programs look, they sound, uh, the way that programs are made in front and behind camera will change in due course. And so actually... That's the stuff that motivates me and sort of gets me out of bed the most because, yeah, it's it's, it's realizing that I've got to a place now where I think I've, I've, I've I, I can back myself to be able to trust my instincts about not just the programs I'm making but the ones that could be made and should be made. Mm. Well, I think that's a brilliant place to end, and I really look forward to seeing you know what comes out of that. Thank you, JJ. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. It was really, really an honour to speak to you. Looking at where you were to where you have come, I think is remarkable, and I truly believe that your story can inspire others going through difficult times, and that is why I started this podcast. So, thank you very much, JJ. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, JJ Chalmers, what a guy. I really hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you did, please do remember to rate, review and subscribe to When Life Gives You Lemons and tune in next week for more amazing guests.